Welcome to episode 27 of Ask Paul Kirtley, where we're going to talk about survival tins and space blankets, dealing with fear when wild camping, what clothing's tough enough for the woods as opposed to just lightweight hiking, are aluminium pots safe to use, what's my opinion on canvas as a material and also specifically lean-tos, should we be using tents or tarps in black fly season? And also, I'd like to remind you that we've got a special with Ray Goodwin coming up, but more on that in the episode. Welcome, welcome to episode 27. Back in the woods today, not long after the previous episode. The bluebells are continuing to come out. They're a little bit late now. It's been a cold April. I'm hoping May is going to be a lot warmer. May bank holiday coming up here in the UK. Nice time to be out in the woods usually. And check my Snapchat very, very soon for that walk in the woods that I'm going to do live on Snapchat, or at least as live as you can get on Snapchat. All right, also I should mention that in an upcoming episode very soon, I will have a special guest on Ask Paul Kirtley. That will be Ray Goodwin. You may have heard the podcast that I put out a few weeks ago where I talked with Ray uh, via Skype. We talked about all manner of adventures via canoe and we are going to get together on May the 9th to record an episode that will be put out later that week and we will be answering your questions. So I would love for you to send in questions for Ray. There's some come in already, but we need some more. Please send in to the usual ways that you can send in Ask Paul Kirtley questions. And just as a reminder, email me via my blog with the hashtag Ask Paul Kirtley in the title or in the uh, body of the email also on Twitter or Instagram with the hashtag AskPaulKirtley. It has to be a public post. Don't direct message me, don't um, DM me on Twitter, don't DM me on Instagram. You have to put a public post in your feed with the hashtag AskPaulKirtley and I can find it. And also SpeakPipe on my blog, just say that the question is for Ray Goodwin or the Ray Goodwin episode, the same on the uh, Insta and the same on the Twitter and the same on the email. Say it's for the Ray Goodwin episode. All right, let's get into the questions for this episode. First question is from Ray Tellier. And Ray asks, Hi Paul, I'm new at Bushcraft and just putting a kit together. Living in New Hampshire, USA, there is a lot of black flies. So that, that being said, should I get a tent or a tarp to start out with? Please keep up the good work. Your videos are awesome. Thank you, Ray. Well, thank you very much, Ray. Thanks for the question and thanks for watching my videos. Um, Blackfly are, I know you're very familiar with Blackfly, but people who aren't familiar with Blackfly, they're a real pain. And um, as with any biting insect, you need to protect yourself from them. 
uh, preferably with some sort of netting. Now clearly a tent is going to, when you're sleeping, is going to protect you as long as it's got some sort of no um mosquito netting in, even if you've got the doors open on a warm uh, night um, to stop the insects coming in. Equally, if you have a tarp, you're going to have to have some sort of bug net. Um, that can be uh, the sort of mosquito net you might take traveling with you in Africa that you sleep inside and you could suspend that from the inside of your uh, tarp, uh, underneath your tarp, just in case it rains as well, that would work. Um, also, there are, so, so, um, I don't know exactly the manufacturer's name, but uh, for example, I've seen Kevin Callan use them and I've seen other people use them in, in Canada. It's basically almost like a tent, um, but it's bigger and it's, uh, it's got mosquito netting sides and they can be really good for sitting around in, um, you know, not in bed, but just having a, an area in your camp that you can sit down in um, without uh, getting bitten by black flies or mosquitoes. So that, that would be the sort of thing that I'd be looking at for where you are. Um, certainly on a personal level, when you're sleeping, you need to be protected from biting insects. And then when you're in, in and around camp, um, as well as camping somewhere that's windy, smoky campfires help but also having a space that you can get into that's protected from the biting insects those would be my recommendations ray um, certainly there are many other people with the same issues and there are some good products out there to to help you out whichever you choose to use tent or top all right next question is from Jason Brown. His question is, Hi Paul, it would be interesting to know personally if you feel that canvas as a material is preferable to well-regarded synthetics. Also, what's your opinion on the Whelan style lean-to? Thanks. Jason from Lexington, Kentucky, USA. So, uh, starting off with a couple of questions from North America tonight. It's good that our North American cousins are tuning into this show as well. Thanks for the questions. Um, so, Jason, Canvas as a, sub, as a material, I like canvas uh, for some applications. I, I think for some of the applications, there are synthetic options which are better, um, but I like canvas for uh, portage packs that are gonna be used a lot. Um, I don't like renting portage packs for a couple of weeks that are canvas, but if I'm buying a portage pack, then I like uh, canvas because it's um, durable. So if I'm using a, a, a portage pack a lot that is going to get a lot of use, um, then canvas is great. So Woods Packs or Duluth or Frost River, they all make nice canvas packs. The downside, of course, is that they're very wet. Uh, they're very heavy when they get wet. Um, so if that's rain or if that's immersion, they're going to get very, very wet. They're going to get heavier still. They're not that light in the first place. They're going to get heavier still, but they last a long time. One of the reasons we've moved away from canvas portage packs for canoeing is um, because people don't go out for as long. They don't need their packs to last as long on a single journey. So you can get away with lighter weight stuff. And um, the modern um, dry bag style um, portage packs have become very popular, but they are going to get holes in them and you still need to double bag them um, just to make sure, particularly for things like sleeping kit, that they don't get wet. And so you do end up having to put things into dry bags inside the portage pack anyway, just as you do with a uh, Duluth pack or a Frost River pack. 
Um, we use a woods pack on some of our trips, even here in the UK, um, even on short trips, because we can put all the kitchen equipment in there. It's a tough bag and there's a lot of heavy, heavier cooking pots and things that go into those and um, it keeps keeps everything from uh, from the metal and the other stuff in there from wearing holes in lesser fabric. So I like it where durability is important, um, but it is heavy. It's heavier when it gets wet um, for, for luggage. Um, and the only place I really would use it for are sort of more traditional canoeing trips, if you like, in that sense. Um, I also like canvas for some tarps in fixed camps. I don't like it for tarps when you're having to, to lug the stuff particularly far, but in our base camps, for example, where we run courses, we use canvas tarps for our kitchen tarps and for our staff tarps, because again, they're durable. Um, you can get some nice green or brown natural colored uh, canvas tarps. They blend in with the environment. They fit with the environment. They last a long time. They're not expensive. They're easy to look after. Um, so as long as you're not traveling too far having to carry them because again they're heavy um, then I like them a lot so vehicle based and base camp stuff I think they work really really well. Um, we have a canvas tent, a store tent as well that we use in our base camp for courses that's excellent it, we've had it for years it's durable it's, uh, it, it takes a beating it keeps the weather out it provides a great space for us to store our food and equipment while we're running courses here in the woods. And so again, I really, really like it for that. Um, what, but it weighs an absolute ton, that tent. I mean, it's, it's an old military tent. It's very heavy, but it's great for the job that we use it for. Um, canvas otherwise, canvas baker tents and similar lean-to tents. I think they're great. They're lovely, fantastic with a fire in front, great with a... Um, great in the fall, great in the spring when you might want more warmth um, and, and I love it and I love the old Bill Mason films when he's using the Baker tent as well so I like that style it has a romanticism to it but also it has a practicality if you want an open fronted shelter with some fire I think they're, they're great um, and again by all means use them but again remember that they're heavy. I also like um, canvas tents for winter camping and I think it comes into its own there. You're not having to put the canvas onto your shoulders in, and carry it anywhere. You can put it on a toboggan that's got very little friction. Of course pulling a toboggan on an incline is still hard work but a lot of the effort is, is, is mitigated by the glide when you're just traveling on lakes and rivers and you can pack out a lot of stuff and a canvas tent is worth its weight in gold in the winter. Um, there's a lot of things that I would leave behind before before I would leave behind a canvas tent with a stove for proper winter camping. It's absolutely fantastic to have that warm space in a, in a sub-zero um, Celsius in a freezing environment, in a cold environment in the winter, to be able to arrive in a snowy environment, travel in that snowy environment, create a warm space that you can live in. Remember, you've got very long nights in the winter, um, particularly in the boreal. You've got long nights, a um, lot of sleep, which is great, but having a warm space where you can eat, we can prepare meals, um, you can sleep, you can um, either then have a fire watch overnight and make sure it stays warm, or 
um, be able to get the fire, get the, get the stove going in the morning and have a nice warm space, get all your sleeping kit aired out, get all your kit aired out overnight um, in the evenings as well, your socks, your gloves, your mittens, the, your boot liners, um, so that everything is bone dry before you set out again the next day, whether it's um, you're in a, in a spot for a few days and you're doing some ice fishing or, or, or other activities in the area, or if you're moving on, just to have that place where you can get everything dry, get your bones warm through again, have a warm meal, absolutely fantastic. So I love canvas tents for those, for those um, situations. The midges are coming out here towards the end of the day which shows it's starting to warm up a little bit. Um, if they're coming out, then uh, it can't be too cold. And the winds died as well. It was windy earlier on and it's quite sheltered here. So I'm going to get a little bit bitten, but they're only little noceums. They're not, it's not like Scottish midges. They're not as voracious. Um, you probably can't see them at all, but that's why I'm, I'm batting away and, and scratching a little bit if you're watching the video rather than listening to the podcast. So those are my thoughts on canvas. Um, if I'm hiking in the, in the mountains, I'm going to carry a lightweight mountain tent. Um, if I'm doing a lightweight backpacking trip, I'm going to carry lightweight modern materials, lightweight backpack, lightweight uh, tent or tarp. Um, I'm not going to carry canvas. Um, and where I choose to use canvas, it's about durability. It's about uh, working with the situation that I um, in as, a, as are the particular instances that I've talked about. So those are my thoughts, Jason. It has its place, but there are other great modern materials as well that also have their place. Okay, aluminium pot safety. This is from Aaron Ashton. And Aaron says, hi Paul, having only been into bushcraft and outdoor skills for about 12 months now, I'm still trying to build a decent kit on a budget, which means cutting costs wherever possible. I'm now looking at buying a cook pot. And although I've heard rumors or wives tales that aluminium pots are to be avoided as they can turn water toxic under heat, I can't find any studies or hard evidence to prove it. So my question is, do I spend money on a stainless pot or potentially suffer a slow but cheap toxic aluminium flavored illness, um, which may never come to fruition? Regards, Aaron Ashton. Well, Aaron, um, it was the case that in recent history, people, or people, um, there was a theory that there may be a hypothesis that there may be a connection between cooking in aluminium pots and Alzheimer's disease. But that has been, as far as I know, um, I did look it up recently because I had a conversation. Um, there is some research out there that suggests that that is completely um, debunked now. There is, there is no connection, um, as far as anybody can tell, between aluminium, cooking in aluminium and, and Alzheimer's disease. So that was, I think there's a lingering, there's a lingering uh, opinion there that people think it might be dangerous in that, that, you know, people have been told over years and years and years that it's not safe to cook in. There's no issue in cooking in aluminium now, as far as we know. Um, and I think there's stronger evidence to suggest that there isn't a connection than there ever was to say that there was a connection in the first place. So I would, I, I happily cook in aluminium. Also these days you can get hard anodized aluminium pots, which are, you know, you have the benefit of the lightness of aluminium, uh, but also a more durable surface that is easier to clean and um, doesn't oxidize in the same way. I mean, aluminium oxidizes almost immediately anyway. Um, so you have a, fi a film of oxidization on uh, raw aluminium. You never have raw aluminium anyway. And that's one of the reasons why you don't get a lot of transfer of aluminium into water 
um, in the first place. But anyway, it's not an issue. So get, get the pot that you want to get within your budget is what I would say. Um, stainless is heavy as well. I mean, I like stainless for some applications, um, particularly some cooking applications, but generally, uh, if, you, if weight is an issue, then aluminium or titanium are much better. And I appreciate titanium is expensive. Aluminium is a particularly hard anodized aluminium is a really good cheaper alternative to, to titanium pots. So that's where I would be looking if I were you. Uh, and enjoy your cooking and your brews, um, your teas and, and everything. Don't worry about it too much. Right. Next one is from Ian Adamson. And Ian says, um, hi Paul, I want advice on what's best to buy in the way of a jacket and trousers for use when collecting wood and lighting and cooking on an open wood fire. As a long time backpacker, all my top clothing is ultra lightweight and made from man-made fibers as well as not being tough enough for working at firewood collection. It is prone to damage from sparks and fire. What do you recommend I should buy? Best regards, Ian. Um, well, Ian, um, I've talked about clothing a fair bit in recent episodes, so I, I, I may have answered this question already in terms of to, to your satisfaction, although um, this is dated 2nd of March, so it's not that long ago um, that you sent this. So my, my recommendation would be to look for either a Gore-Tex uh, jacket that's tougher than one of your lightweight jackets that you use for, for backpacking. So either... I mean, you're going to end up spending money, unfortunately, if you're going to go down the Gore-Tex route. That's just the nature of the beast. Unless, you know, even lightweight mountaineering and backpacking jackets are expensive, made of Gore-Tex. And if you go for something by Swazi, for example, which make very, very tough, yet well breathable um, jackets, they're going to be expensive. Um, Swazi Tar is excellent, but it's, it's quite pricey. But then again, you're paying for good quality workmanship. It's not farmed out to some cheap manufacturing place in China. Um, it's still made in New Zealand and um, the, the clothing's excellent. I've had a Swazi tar for years. I use it a lot. I use it in the woods for teaching. Um, I use it on canoe trips and it, it's just bomb proof. Um, I find it too hot for hiking, but for being out and about in the woods, just generally being around camp when I'm when I'm teaching and when I'm moving around a relatively short space with not a huge amount of load on, or on canoeing trips under any circumstances, I find it really really good. Um, for hiking, I tend to like to wear something with more ventilation, and for that, uh, that's also tough for the woods. I like the Norina Recon jacket, which you've seen me wear. I've got the old style one. Um, you've seen me wear that on some of the Aspol Kirtleys as well um, in recent episodes. It's the green. Um, the green jacket with the zip front and um, it has pit zips and, and it has a lot of ventilation but it's also tough triple layer Gore-Tex designed for use in the woods and the mountains. I really really like it um, but they're both expensive jackets. Um, you could go for Ridgeline jackets, they're cheaper, they're tough um, but uh, I don't actually know where you are Ian, I'm assuming you're in the UK. Ridgeline, um, they're a lot cheaper than Swazi say, but there's a reason why they're cheaper than Swazi. They don't perform anywhere near as well, and specifically they're nowhere near as breathable. Um, and I know that from doing direct comparisons, um, you know, where we've had both jackets side by side on trips, and um, they both um, prevent, uh, they both prevent uh, vapor passing as well as some of the more expensive fabrics, and they also 
the fabric um, itself seems to hold more water when it gets wet as well, either from the inside or the outside. So uh, I'm not a huge fan of Ridgeline, I have to say. Uh, from a personal perspective, I prefer, use, I prefer spending money on a higher performance fabric, but if you're very budget constrained, if you want something that's tough, that will keep the water out and that won't cost you a lot of money, then have a look at Ridgeline. There's also some of the hunting um, and shooting fishing clothing that might be worth looking at because it tends to be tougher. Um, so maybe have a look in a local shooting shop um, for you know things like Jack Pike and other Deerstalker. Um, those sorts of brands tend to be quite tough and not too expensive. So um, that might be worth looking at as well. And they tend to be mute natural colours as well, which is good for seeing more wildlife and, and just blending into the woods generally, which a lot of people want to do these days. Um, I also like Fjallraven trousers. You talked about, uh, when you said top clothing, I'm, I don't know whether you mean your top upper body or whether you mean your best clothing, um, your top clothing. But I like Fjallraven trousers. They're hard to beat, they're tough, they're durable. Um, both in terms of uh, just general use, washing, lasting a long time, as well as um, thorns, uh, brambles, uh, brushing against stuff, kneeling down, all of those sorts of things that wear out your typical hiking trousers. Um, they're great in the woods. Um, you can get uh, an ember to burn a hole through them because they are synthetic cotton mix, but you know even cotton you can burn through with an ember and uh, frankly these are much much preferable because they dry super quickly as well particularly if you have a fire you can stand near a fire for 10 minutes and dry out a pair of these trousers you know so i rarely in the woods i rarely wear waterproof trousers when i'm wearing the Fjallraven trousers so they they are excellent um the other option you might want to look for as a top and we talked about this on relatively recent episodes is a ventile jackets go back and look through previous episodes of Aspal Kirtley for specific recommendations and also look at some of the comments from various people um, go to Ventile uh, go to Ventile's website as well for a list of manufacturers of people who make currently make clothing in Ventile um, you could end up wearing uh, a not too expensive Ventile smock over one of your say I don't know Prima Loft um, or down jackets or or similar synthetic upper body stuff that will keep you warm and then you can protect it with the ventile and as a combination that'll make a good one for the woods. I like ventile with a buffalo underneath it for example that works really really well um, whereas the, the, the pertex of the buffalo on its own is uh, it's susceptible to damage from fire particularly if you're burning stuff like we have around here there's a lot of sweet chestnut around here it pops and spits when you burn it when once you've split it down as does pine and those that spitting can burn holes in pertex really really quickly but with the ventile top over it yeah, I, i'm not so worried because the ventile will protect it the cotton will protect it so hopefully that helps ian let me know what you go for in the end always interested to see what people do based on what i've said um next one dealing with fear in the woods this is from david ward um and i read this question earlier when i was just choosing some questions from the from the pot of questions that i have outstanding and i was impressed with david's honesty here and not everybody would um admit to uh being worried when they're out in the woods um but you know but I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with David for just being honest and, and saying this is something that he deals with and, and it's a good question. And, I'm, and I know other people, um, you know, I've had people on courses in the past who don't like being in the woods in the dark, for example. Um, and it, it's, 
definitely something that is, is not as uncommon as you might think. So I, I'm very happy to address this, David. So David's question is, thanks for replying to my question about fire making in the rain. My next question, how do you deal with irrational fear when solo wild camping? I'm not afraid of animals. I live in the UK, so nothing too dangerous around, but there is a subconscious fear of possible interference from someone discovering me while sleeping and causing harm or mischief. Have you any occurrences of unwelcome attention and how do you overcome that background and uh, that background anxiety that you might be at risk? Um, well, you're, you're right, David, it is um, somewhat irrational and it's good that you recognize it as such because um, it's a little bit like, you know, you say you're in the UK, so you're not worried about animals, but it's also a little bit like people worrying about bears and wolves. You know, I think concern about wolves is completely irrational. There are no recorded instances of wolves attacking people unless they've got rabies. And, um, you know, people go on about wolves all the time, about being, you know, afraid of wolves. You know, I think it's absolutely fantastic when you hear wolves howling in the wild. So these fears are often irrational and it's, so it's not just a fear of um, animals but also just a, a general fear. Um, I think you do feel more exposed when you're camping on your own than when you're camping with other people. That's normal, I think that's part of our evolution, it's part of our, as you say, it's subconscious, uh, unconscious is probably a better way of saying it because our unconscious is not subordinate to our conscious mind it's just part of our brain and it serves an important function so it's an unconscious thing that we may feel somewhat more exposed when we're on our own and we are in a sense because in the past we've evolved with a lot of predatory animals around that might cause us harm and so there is that and we've also probably and nobody really knows evolved with other uh, you know warring uh, tribes and we don't know how long you know, we might have been under those sort of circumstances where then, you know, being out on our own was risky for, for various reasons. So yeah, I can completely understand that. But in the context of camping today, it's relatively irrational, particularly as a man. Um, I don't think you've got much to worry about um, just in terms of, you know, who, who, is, who tends to be attacked, who tends to be um, interfered with. Well, unfortunately, it's women and it's children more often than men in that sense. Um, men are more likely to be attacked in, in, in an urban situation, particularly if you're you know, in a pub on a Saturday night or, you know, that's where men tend to get into fights and, and tend to have uh, violence against them. In the woods, on your own, um, it's unlikely. I mean, how is anybody going to find you in the first place? If you're sleeping in the dark woods somewhere, how is somebody going to find you? Um, and also, if I was walking in the woods at night and I, am, I came across somebody who was sleeping, uh, or it just came across somebody in the dark, I'd be as scared as, as, as the other person. So I think um, it, it's irrational in that sense. Um, you know, that somebody's not going to easily find you. And even, even if you have a fire um, and you're sitting there on your own, um, nobody's going to really bother you um, unless you're not supposed to be there. And that might be the, I don't know if that's the crux of the question or whether it's, a, a, or whether it's something else, but if you're camping somewhere you're not supposed to be, that you don't have permission and you're trying to hide, then of course that's going to arouse more anxiety than if you have permission to camp somewhere. You know, for example, 
Um, I'm, I'm here at our uh, course site and I camped here last night on my own and uh, there's no issue at all. I slept a good eight hours and I woke up with a dawn chorus. It's really nice. Um, and I'm not saying you should necessarily feel like that automatically, but what I mean is nobody's, you know, I'm, I'm allowed to be here and I'm not worried about sleeping here. I'm not a million miles away from a public footpath in terms of where we're camped. Um, as, as a lot of land in the UK, there's public um, rights away crisscrossing and people can walk and enjoy the woods. And I'm not worried about dog walkers or, um, you know, I've been, I've been, I've been, uh, speaking of dogs and dog walkers, um, I've been uh, woken up by dogs in the past that have come over to say hello, you know, because they can smell you or they can smell your camp and they come running through the woods and they're interested. Um, you know, so, you know, you might... <laughs> You might have a, you know, an inquisitive black Labrador coming in licking your face in the middle of the night or something. But um, in terms of people, uh, it's so unlikely. Um, I think you're much more at risk of, of other things in other parts of your life in terms, you know, your driving and um, just falling and hurting yourself in the woods or... Um, you know, being at risk of getting cold and wet or falling down the stairs at home or you're cutting yourself with your cutting tools. There are many, many, many more risks that, you know, you look at it statistically, what, what, where do people come to harm? It's not from some random stranger attacking you in the night in the woods. I mean, it, it really isn't. So I think, and, and I'm, I'm sort of stressing the point because I think you have to analyze it rationally. It's like, what, what are the chances even even if somebody had intent, even if there was a psychopath out there who had the intent to hurt somebody, how on earth would they find you if you're in a bivvy bag in the middle of some woods somewhere? Statistically, they're going to look somewhere where there are more people, you know. Otherwise, they're probably going to be roaming the woods for most of their life before they ever find anybody. They'd be much better, even in the UK, which is populated, they'd be much better off stalking, you know, urban streets and, um, you know, suburban areas and that, Frank, you know, it's, it's a horrible thing to talk about, but you know, if you if you statistically wanted to go and find somebody to do harm to, wandering around the woods in the dark on the off chance you found a, a camper is probably not the way that you get some success in that. So, you know, let's be completely rational about it. Even if somebody had intent to harm somebody, they it'd be so hard to find you. And even if somebody's a trained tracker, trying to track you in the dark and find you in the dark is very difficult anyway. So. The chances of somebody finding you um, are so slim, even if they wanted to. And, you know, all the statistics point to nobody wanting to find you anyway, unless you shouldn't be there. So as long as you're camping where you should be, just relax and enjoy it. And if you really, really do have worries about being out on your own, then, then try and find some like-minded people to go camping with. There's plenty of bushcraft groups um, online, whether it be they Facebook groups or forums, that you can meet like-minded people online and maybe uh, go to a meet um, with them. Um, they might, there are many uh, regular meets in different parts of the country arrange to go to a meet, camp with them, and then maybe arrange to do a side trip with somebody who lives relatively local to you. Um, and then you're not out on your own. So those would be my suggestions. Look at it rationally. Don't worry. Um, I don't worry, certainly. Um, also, I'm a big bloke in the woods and I've got an ax and a knife and I've got, you know, and I'm also aware of my surroundings. So um, it, I really don't worry about it um, and you know if you're really really still concerned 
find some like-minded people and enjoy the woods together. Because at the end of the day, um, however you feel about being in the woods on your own, um, it's still very enjoyable to share a campfire with other people. And, and you know, I don't worry about sleeping in the woods on my own, but I have to say I generally enjoy, particularly on the longer, darker evenings, um, you know, uh, away from summer, I enjoy the company around the campfire. So if you can find somebody to share those experiences with, then, then do so if that helps you enjoy the outdoors more. That was quite a long answer. I was a little bit repetitive there, apologies. Um, last question, and this is a speak pipe question from Craig Longstaff. It'll just take me a second for the phone to start up the audio. I listened to this earlier. It's slightly, um, the audio is slightly mushy, as it were. So I may have to repeat the question if you can't hear it. Hi, Paul, it's Craig, aka Pat First question, what you found on public survival tins and space blankets, aka soil blankets? Secondly, if you're eating a video on complex blade sharpening, you can that one. Cheers, Paul. Keep well. Take care. Best wishes. All right, so yeah, it's, it's quite hard to hear what Craig's saying there. The audio quality of the, the phone line wasn't great. Um, leaving that uh, speak, pipe, uh, speak pipe question. So the question, there were two parts to the question. Uh, the second part was, am I going to do a video on sharpening convex knives? Um, at some point, I may well do that, Craig. I don't have anything in the immediate future planned, um, but I will make a note that you are looking to see that but it's not a million miles away from sharpening an axe frankly i mean it's the same you've got a convex bevel um you're looking to cover the metal and not change the shape of the bevel and maintain that shape and it's a very very similar process to sharpening an axe and i'm sure you can find some material on sharpening an axe um in the meantime before i produce anything other question was what's my opinion on tobacco survival tins and space blankets well, they have their place, don't they? Um, I mean, the co I was a big fan of Lofty Wiseman's book when I was younger and I made uh, tobacco survival tins as a teenager and I carried tobacco survival tins and I carried tobacco survival tins even when I started doing backpacking trips and particularly when I was doing solo backpacking trips, I thought, well, I should have some survival equipment with me. Um, and I, I took what I'd made in the past, you know, and I'd, I'd sourced, you know, a, a lot of those things in Lofty Wiseman's survival tin are not so easy to find if you want to make them properly. And I'd sourced a lot of the kit and I had still had it, so I updated them and I would take them. But then I got to thinking that, um, particularly when I, well, two, there was sort of an intersecting set of thoughts, really. Um, first off is whenever you're backpacking, you're always thinking about reducing weight and reducing redundancy in your kit, um, apart from areas such as first aid, when clearly you need some first aid items, even if you're not using them every trip. But I would often be looking at what did I use? What didn't I use? What could I, where can I save weight? And the survival equipment kept coming up as one of the areas that mm, I'm carrying this stuff and I'm not using it, but it's a bit like first aid. 
but then also if you if you're then also if you're carrying things that you're using like a, a knife and some sort of fire starter and you're using those on a day-to-day -day basis then why are you carrying them in a survival kit as well um, as long as they're not going to wear out during your trip and then you're not you know you, oh, oh i just wore my ferro rod out yesterday um and now I'm in a survival situation. I don't have what means. I mean, that's not going to happen on a two, three, four, five week backpacking trip, even a three month backpacking trip. So I started to think of, you know, I'm carrying things, duplicates, basically. It wasn't that I don't want to carry survival kit items because I don't think they're necessary. It was like, well, I've got duplicates. I've got this survival tin with a little um, fire lighter in it, but then I've got a better one that I'm carrying with me to light my stove or light campfires. Um, I've got a scalpel blade in my survival tin but I've got a I've got a decent um, Swiss Army knife or a lock knife or whatever I've, whatever the relevant trip was. Um, so there's a lot of duplication. And then if you do use stuff out the survival tin for day-to-day -day use, then it's not available for survival use either. So uh, I, I ended up and I've written about it in a in a blog article on my on my blog a long time ago. It's probably five years ago, and it could probably do with a little bit of updating in terms of some of the equipment that's in there. But the the the, the the, the the thought behind it is is still valid um, in rather than carrying a survival kit just carry the things that you need on a day-to-day -day basis remove the duplication and just make sure that you have all the bases covered if you do end up in a difficult situation in the outdoors um, so I, I talk more about carrying those items you know what I've got on my person now I have a I have a, a little lock I have a lock knife that works with my ferro rod I have my ferro rod I have a first aid kit in my pocket I've got a cigarette lighter in my pocket I've got paracord in my pocket those are the standard things that I've got in my pocket um, at all times anyway when I'm outdoors so I don't need to then replicate those things I don't need a, a little spool of cordage and a scalpel blade and a, a wire saw I've got a Laplander on my belt um, I don't need a wire saw in a survival tin um, because I'm never going to use it and if I'm in a difficult situation I'll use my Laplander or I'll use my block knife or I'll use my ferro rod I won't use the stuff out of a survival tin anyway so those those are my thoughts as a civilian if you're going out doing a backpacking trip um, or a camp. If you're a soldier on the other hand, you know, if you have to ditch your backpack, your Bergen, if you have to ditch your belt kit and just having those few items in your smock or in your personal, um, on your person, that's a completely different situation to anything any civilian's going to find themselves in. Um, so. For, for, you know, if you're a prepper and you're thinking about bug out, then yeah, maybe a a survival tin might make sense because you know who knows if you're going to be able to carry all that bug out kit. But other than that, I can't think of any civilian situation really where you're going to be separated from what's on your person. I mean, clearly. You don't want all your fire lighting kit in your rucksack if you're doing a, if a river crossing, for example. Um, or even if you're being transported, um, for, for example, if you're taking a light aircraft flight, you know, whether you're on a, a trip in Africa or on a trip in Canada, um, I, two examples I can think of recently where I've been in light aircraft, you don't, you're separated from most of your equipment. It can be handy to have a few, if you're flying over wilderness in a light aircraft, it can be handy to have a few items on you, on your person. But still I would maintain that 
you can carry those things as day-to-day -day items because you're going to be using them anyway. You're going to be lighting fires every day, you're going to be whittling or you're going to be using a lock knife or even if you don't have a belt knife with you, you're going to be using those things. Um, because fundamentally, one of the reasons why, as a soldier, you can't carry much more than that is you've got to carry a ton of ammunition. And as civilians, that's not a, a situation we're going to find ourselves in on our day-to-day -day outdoor life. So we can carry those things, full-size things. You can carry a lock knife, you can carry a ferro rod, you can carry a little first aid kit, you can carry a, a full-size compass, you can carry or you know if you if you're in an area where fishing is a possibility you can carry a proper fishing kit even if you're not carrying a rod you can carry a more substantial fishing kit and then you can fish um, and catch food as part of your trip and in, if you are in a difficult situation you've still got those things you don't need to be you know if you're a soldier fighting you're not on a fishing trip so you're going to have a few hooks in your survival tin just in case but if you're out um, on a canoeing trip, you're probably going to take a fishing kit with you. And if you're hiking in the mountains, it's irrelevant. So you don't need it. So take the things that you're going to use, make sure that you've got the most important things on your person in case you're separated from your main kit. And frankly, I can't see why you would need then to duplicate those items again in a way that are, are useless on a day-to-day -day basis and that are those needs are better served by your day-to-day -day items. So that those are my thoughts. Survival, uh, silvered survival blankets, um, there was research done to, to show that they don't really perform any better than an orange survival bag because your main, the, there are five mechanisms of heat loss to an environment. Um, respiration, radiation, evaporation, uh, convection and conduction. And radiation is relatively small compared to uh, the big three, which are evaporation, conduction, and convection. So if you can break out conduction to the ground, um, wind, if you can trap air near to you, you can stop precipitation getting onto you and evaporative heat loss and stop also your clothes becoming less insulative when they become wet, um, then you are doing the major job of preventing as much as you can getting hypothermia. The reflective surface of, uh, in terms of reflecting some radiation back doesn't make a lot of difference unless you are in extremely cold environments, in which case you need something more than a, blank, a silver survival blanket anyway. That's not going to save your life at minus 30. What you need is a big fire um, or a suitable snow shelter. Um, so, you know, frankly, a, a plastic bag, a, a survival bag, is just as good as a silvered survival blanket in most cases. But they are compact. They're also quite strong. They have some useful um, first aid uses as well, like stabilizing people when they've got a broken pelvis, or you can make um, various uh, uh, um, slings and, and immobilizations with them. Um, so they're useful in that respect, but in terms of their intended use, you're just as well off in most circumstances with an orange survival bag. And an orange survival bag has the added advantage of being seen very easily from a distance, um, particularly, uh, particularly against a green or a, a snowy white background. You can see an orange survival bag very, very well. Whereas a survival, the silvered ones, um, they can stand out very well if, it's, if they're reflecting well, 
but equally they can reflect the ambient sort of, if you in these woods, for example, um, they wouldn't stand out as much as an orange bag because they're also reflecting back <laughs> the colors of the woods um, that are around me, the tree trunks and the, the greenery and, and what have you. And similarly, they can be quite hard to see on snow um, compared to orange survival bags as well. So personally, my first preference to have in the bottom of my day bag is an orange survival bag because um, it's easily seen, it's going to knock out the main three methods of heat loss, at least it's going to stop water and it's going to stop, um, uh, it's going to trap air and I can sit on my backpack to stop the conduction and um, I can cut it up to make it into a tarp in the woods. It's harder to do that with silvered survival bags um, because they're not as tough. So my preference is for an orange bag. Um, if you can take both, that's a good combo because you can make a, um, a double layer bag out of it and uh, that's better. Um, but I'll have to cover that on a blog in future uh, rather than put it in here um, because I can't show things because people are listening as well. But yeah, orange bag first, silver bag second would be my, would be my choice uh, for those reasons. All right, um, that brings us to the end and um, I'm rambling a little bit because I'm tired. It's the end of the day. It's starting to get a bit dark. It's 10 past seven here. I'm recording this in the evening. So remember about Ray Goodwin. He is on the show soon. Send in some Ask Paul Curtly questions and say they're for Ray or for me and Ray on that special show. Plane going over the top. And also, again, keep, keep up um, those of you that are joining me on Snapchat, please keep joining me. Those that you haven't done already, get over to Snapchat. We're putting out some good stuff there. There's going to be some more good stuff out there next week. And also Instagram. I'm really loving Instagram at the moment. It's a really nice platform for sharing nice images. And as I said on the previous episode, I'm sharing, trying to share a nice image every day, something that I'm up to, somewhere that I am. Uh, typically, sometimes I share photos from previous trips, but I'm always trying to share stuff that's inspirational or educational and also nice to look at. So follow me on Instagram, follow me on Snapchat. Um, the links are here in the videos. I'll put up the links. Um, Paul Kirtley on both. You'll find me there. Just search on Paul Kirtley. Um, that's my username. You will find me there easily or via the social links on my blog at paulkirtley.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And I will see you on the next episode. Take care. Cheers.